You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. The story of The Listening Dead began in early March 2005 when Phil Mucci was asked to develop a music video treatment for a new band. Mucci, a New York City photographer, had just started a small production company, The Hive, and came up with a concept of a girl scribbling her boyfriend out of a photo, causing him to become a walking scribble in real life. When the band rejected this idea, the silent horror flick, The Listening Dead, was born. With us today are Phil Mucci, the film's writer and director, and Michael Hauk, its production designer and special effects supervisor. Phil, Michael, welcome to Film School. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Good. Very good. Now tell us, we've got a, a silent horror film here. Was there any particular point in time that you decided uh, to go silent, to go with an with, uh, older look, with a classic look? Yeah, when I was coming up with this story... I pulled some events from my own life, basically, uh, sort of a bad relationship I had been in. And I wanted to have a minimal number of characters, obviously, because it was being independently financed. And I came up with the idea that these people are in a, are in a relationship, the husband and wife are in a relationship, and they can't really communicate with each other. They don't listen to each other. Uh, they don't hear each other. So in that way, it became easy to sort of go the silent route. Uh, the silent film became sort of a metaphor for their relationship, that they didn't communicate. That's, that was kind of the reasoning behind it. And then once I thought, like, what a great direction that would be to go in, then we entirely embraced that type of film. It also became sort of a, a style showpiece for us in terms of a lot of things we'd wanted to try and had been trying in still photography, but wanted to explore more with, uh, with film. Some of the things we admired about filmmaking, the, the use of miniatures and sort of the old optical techniques and all that great stuff that gives yeah. older films a real texture that we kind of feel is, uh, you know, disappearing when everyone's going digital. So The Handmaid is, was a real big attraction for us, and it seemed to fit the story very well. Well, we just played The Ascension, which is the Dead Can Dance piece that opens the film, and there's a great miniature set there right at the beginning. Right. Tell us a little bit about that, you know, how, how you put that together. Uh, that was a, a horrible, grueling process. <laughs> we wanted to have seen something right at the beginning to sort of make people interested right away and something that we would want to see if we were going to watch a, a, you know, a short film. That set ended up being uh, made out of foam and multiple panels. Uh, it was about 8 feet wide by 16 or so feet long with, with a blue screen behind it and the camera tracking down that valley, ending up at the house at the end. But it was, uh, involved everybody on the crew, which was about 9 or 10 people, pulling sliding foam panels out of the way so the camera could get through and running yeah. a fog machine and, yeah, working a puppet. It was, uh, it was a nightmare. Now, that was the puppet, the, the dog that you're talking about? Yeah, right, right at the beginning, there's a little uh, wolf on a cliff. And that's, that, that's, that's Ravage, I think is his name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, one of, that's one of his incarnations, yeah. yeah. That one was an actual puppet that Mike, Michael made, and he, uh, he had tiny little copper piping behind it with string, and he pulled him to make him look like he was howling at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, the second, uh, well, the wolves in the foreground and the, and the later wolf are all stop motion, so, but that yeah. one was actually a live puppet. Oh. They look great. I, I always like that style, too. I don't like things, I've, I said before just on the show, that when things are absolutely literal, 
I don't like it. I, I right. like something that's just a, a step yeah, we, outside of that. So your imagination comes into play. Yeah, we totally. That's that's exactly how Michael and uh, Sean and I felt, and and Predrag too. The uh, the DP was that uh, we wanted people to know right away you're going into a storybook. This is our version of this world. You're entering something that's not real, but this is handmade, and this isn't you know kind of a stylistic expression of like. Here's what we're into. Get ready. <laughs> yeah. You found a, a house in the area that fit into uh, what you were trying to do. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the location. Yeah, Sean Joyner, the producer, did some research and found this amazing mansion built in, uh, I think it was 1873. And it's in Kingston, New York, which is about two and a half hours north of the city. And it's owned by a painter named Hunt Slonim who's incredibly rich and had this really old mansion that he kept furnished with a lot of very old furniture. So it was really a lucky find. And when we went up there to uh, scout it, uh, Sean, Michael, and I, it was eerie because the, the script that I had written, the action flowed exactly in the layout of the house. <laughs> I mean, it had a piano in the front room. It yeah. had the staircase going up to an old attic. It yeah. had all this stuff that was written. So we, we knew it was perfect, you know, when we got there. We're speaking with uh, Michael Hauk and Phil Mucci. Phil Mucci, the director. Michael Hauk, the production designer of the film The Listening Dead, the silent horror flick, The Listening Dead. Now, now, Phil, you you were a uh, or have been a photographer in New York for what about ten years? Yeah. Was there? Was there? Did you always want to get into film, or was this just something that came came about when you were in your uh, photography career? I did always want to get into film. I think when I was younger, I was a little bit more naive and ambitious, and I thought well, you know, I can write, so I'll just study some photography, I'll become a famous photographer, then I'll have money to just start making my films, which, of course, took, didn't really happen like that. But once I started doing a lot of commercial photography and advertising photography, I, I, it really became more of a pressing need to actually make a film because I, I was getting tired of um, the lack of creativity, you know, that I was allowed in, those, in a lot of those projects. And I really wanted to do a film as an expression of my interests and, and sort of my art, something where I didn't have a lot of people sitting over me and telling me, you know, fix this, do that, something where we could just really go for it and, and have fun. Doing the photography really did help me. It did train me a lot, I think, in terms of coming up with a visual style or determining my aesthetic. It gave me the money to actually go and do this film. You had some pretty famous gigs before in photography. Name some of the people that you were involved with. I've shot a lot of music and a lot of celebrity. I've, you know, I've shot performers like Ludacris, Christina Aguilera, Jay-Z. I've worked with some bands, too, like My Chemical Romance and Fall Out Boy. And I've had my fingers in a lot of that stuff. <laughs> I've had, I think a lot of that was a good, good training for directing, too, because even in still <laughs> photography, you're dealing with a crew of maybe 20 people, and especially with celebrities, they've got their handlers. You've got to keep three yeah. sets going at once. So it was good training, I yeah. think. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like it. And Michael, you moved to New York from Texas to uh, study art. That's right. I've basically been in art school for my whole life and, uh, you know, uh, went to Cooper Union downtown in New York and then went to graduate school and got a degree in painting and uh, have known Phil for seven or so years now. Yeah. You know, working in film just seems like the ideal way to combine everything that's interesting about art into one uh, incredibly pressurized, <laughs> challenging yeah. shoot where you get to do it all. It's 2D and 3D and dealing with concepts and dealing with motion and time and all that stuff that's great that's really exciting about 
about the, making art. It says here production uh, designer. Um, were yeah. you laying out the rooms? Were you moving things around? Were you dealing with lighting at all? Wait, works. Uh, Phil and I sort of uh, did all the pre-visualization and all the storyboarding, and, uh-huh. and like he like he said, we kind of had rough storyboards, and we saw this house, and it was ideal. It was perfect, but we just had to change a few things around practically. He and Fred worked out the lighting, but we had done sort of a style. Uh, uh, DVD for everybody to show of clips that we wanted as reference. And Fred did a great job. I think it looks gorgeous, sort of matching Phil's vision of it. And really what we had to do in terms of the house was uh, prop it out, sort of move, uh, minimal propping actually, because a lot of it was already there, but sort of orchestrate stuff for camera and figure out what thematically would work in the shot and what would sort of add to what that scene was, uh, was telling. There was a lot of artwork in the film. It, yeah. Was that there already? Uh, pretty much everything you see yeah. in terms of artwork, the sculpture, the paintings... Yeah. All that stuff was there. We just had to sort of take it from elsewhere in the house and put it together where it made sense. And the, the house was uh, incredible. It was stacked. There were paintings, these beautiful frames, literally leaning against the wall wow. in the corner, ten deep. So we, and there, yeah, and, and an eerie number of statues everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were. One of the things you do with the film that I, I appreciate that to give it the uh, that silent look uh, is that that flickering light that you get. When you, from the old films, you see that sort of the light within the frame dims. Is that just a, a common effect they have on the program you used when you mix this, or is this something you worked out? Well, there's a couple of things I think that uh, contribute to that. I think the frame rate we shot it at, we shot it at, uh, I think it was 16 or 18. 18, yeah. 18 to give it sort of the more stuttery look and right. a little bit more flicker, but Phil did in post add some of that, but not too much. You didn't want to look, you didn't want it to look like he ran a filter on top of everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's beautiful looking. It's just enough of that to give it the, the glow that you need. In fact, it almost animates it, I think, the, the lighting does. Yeah. When you were at that house, you said you, you, you booked it for two days and uh, it should have been about four. Is that yeah. the way it worked? <laughs> Easily. Yeah. Our reach exceeded our uh, grasp. I had no idea how many shots I could actually achieve in a day. I, I'd never worked with a film crew of so much as a still crew where in stills I, I felt I could really get a lot of things done. So for some reason, I... I figured we could get like 45 shots a day on location, which was impossible. Mm-hmm. I learned it, you know, about halfway through the first day when we don't even have our, our first shot done. I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I started panicking. So Sean Joyner, the producer, and I just sat down with the storyboards, and anything that we could possibly shoot at a different time, we just pulled it out of the, out of the shot list to just mm-hmm. get what we could get at the house. And that required us to, <laughs> two months later, to uh, actually rent uh, an empty loft down the hall from, from our place, from our landlord for two weeks to build sets in to get our inserts and cutaways and stuff like that. There is one scene I uh, especially like. It's just the transitory room or the transition room between where the piano is and where the wife works on uh-huh. her dresses. And there's the bear's head there. Was that in the house or was that... <laughs> that was there, yeah. That was... Uh... One of the lucky finds. Yeah. <laughs> just laying there on the floor. We just moved it into frame, basically. Yeah, yeah. I love the way that thing is framed up, too. Yeah. The, way the, the way the light's coming down out of the uh, door. It's a very fine shot. One, a, of, one of the things I was struck by, while it does definitely has that era, that uh, you know, the silent era look about it, there's a lot of Citizen Kane look to this film. <laughs> you know what I mean? With the, yeah, with the the camera on the floor shooting oh, okay. up. Okay, back for depth of field. Depth of field. Compliment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, no, you should. Yeah. I, I oh, no. just... We we uh, I might mention this briefly, but one of the things that we did to prepare the crew and to get everybody on the same page because 
there wasn't any rehearsal day or anything. It was yeah. basically meet at our place early in the morning, get in the vans, we're going up to the location, we're going to start shooting. So to prepare everyone, I did go through a lot of old films and pull clips and put them together on a, on a sort of a compilation DVD, and then I did a voice track over it, a commentary talking about the specific aspects of these films that I really liked. So Citizen Kane was not... <laughs> it was not one of them, but a movie by Mario Bava called Black Sunday mm-hmm. was, was a big influence, especially in terms of the lighting and those kind of camera angles. And also just the German expressionist silent films anyway of Murnau. Sure. And, uh, Murnau's Faust was a big influence, too. And but I was... yeah, I mean, that, in that shot, that sort of doorway, it's not really a doorway there. That's the end of the room. We had to just fake all that, but I definitely, you know, we propped that a little bit too. I wanted to get that that spinning loom in there too, because I, yeah, again, that, it was like fairy tale, you know. That room probably had the most added stuff to it, with the exception of the bearskin. And we had to rebuild part of that room too for the reshoots. <laughs> when they look, when they're when you're looking up at the wife and looking up at the ghost, when they're looking at the photograph, that was not shot in the in the uh, place. Was there a lot of occasions like that? I and mean, were you nervous after you left the house? Do you think I might not? I was terrified. Yeah, I was like, "Oh my God, it just cost me a fortune, and I, I don't, I only have half a movie." Yeah. <laughs> it was just the first time I'd ever done it, so I, I got back and I, I started editing it together in Final Cut, and uh, I just put in storyboards where stuff was missing. Bit by bit, we tried to condense and figure out: Do we need this shot? Can we get away with this? It was really great that we had, you know, me, Sean, and and Mike really worked our butts off to get the reshoots done, you know, and. and build these sets, and we had a lot of help from the, the crew who, once, once they saw the rough cut, everybody was kind of like really down and really into helping out, so right. we were lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Got well, very lucky. Sounds like you were lucky in a, in a number of ways, too. Uh, the uh, one actor, Peter Scriba, Peter Scriba, yeah. Scriba he brings his, uh, the film score along with him, essentially. Basically, yeah. He, uh, we got really lucky with him. We found him through an ad in Craigslist. <laughs> <laughs> he came and uh, auditioned for us. He had the look that I really liked, and he just said, oh, and by the way, I've been writing music since you know I was like 10 years old. I'll send you some MP3s of the track. And he sent me one that ended up being the main theme of the mm. entire movie. Um, it's a piece he'd written years ago. He doesn't even really actually know how to play piano. No. A little secret. Well, it was a secret. <laughs> uh, but all that stuff he he does on the computer. He programs it in the computer. And, you know, I just had to ask him to, you know, like extend it. And once we had a good edit of the film, he and I just sort of did a spotting session and he filled it out. You know, I think it's great. A lot of people really, really like that score. And I'm, I'm, I couldn't be more pleased with it. Yeah. Yeah. It just goes perfectly with, with the whole feel of the film. Tell us a little bit about the actresses. You had two actresses in the film. Karen Miller is a friend of mine. We met on a photo shoot for the album cover for a band called Louis the Fourteenth. She uh, appeared on that album cover. And I, I was the photographer on that shoot, and she and I just got along great. And uh, we ended up shooting, a, we got stuck in L.A. during a snowstorm, and we shot a little, like, you know, low-budget, no-budget, actually, uh, music video with her. And we just stayed in touch, and when I had the script written, I sent it to her, and she was like, I'd love to do it. And she was kind of our, our star because she had been in The Wedding Crashers, briefly. Mm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, she's Will Ferrell's uh, girlfriend in that film. She was really excited to be a part of it and just, just one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. And Sarah Hunt was another New York City find. She was a St. Louis stage actress who had recently moved to the city. When we met her, we just, we just hit it off yeah. perfectly, and, and she had a, such a unique beauty that it was pretty easy at that point. You know, again, 
to just put an ad in Craigslist and get the response that we yeah. got was pretty lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's New York, you know, there's, act- there's actors everywhere around here. True. And, and Sarah, too, you say she has a unique beauty, but in the film itself, it's, a, it's certainly a different kind of beauty going on there. There's, yeah. there's, there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of makeup going on. There's no cornea. <laughs> and yeah, you, yeah. Was, yeah, willing to wear the contacts. Well. Yeah. yeah, the contact lenses were a pain. <laughs> She, yeah, she couldn't see when she had those on. Oh, really? Yeah. So we had, we had another pair that had a tiny uh, pupil in it so that she could see a little bit uh-huh. for some scenes where she had to move around a lot. Um, and then we had to retouch out the, the little pupil. But, yeah, the idea in the movie was that at first we see her and, oh, she's this beautiful spirit. But then as the film progresses, you see more and more of her. Like, it's supposed to creep you out at the yeah, end. Yeah, the absolutely. The up is supposed to like, ooh, <laughs> I thought she was hot. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to ask uh, Michael about that ethereal quality that you got, the ghost quality that she had. Is that just a standard setup to get that look, or did you Well, that play was around? kind of a, Phil's uh, brainchild. It was a, you know, an, old, an old technique of just, uh, we basically shot one take with, say, Peter in the room doing his thing, and we know the ghost is going to be there uh-huh. uh, when we cut it together, and then we'll lock the camera down, shoot the next shot, but cover everything that the ghost is going to be in front of with uh, black velvet or duvetine. We just overlaid them. And uh, there were some lighting tricks that Fred had worked out to kind of give her more of a flutter and more of a glow. Uh, it had someone following her with a, the light on a boom. Uh-huh. Sort of thing. And but, a fan, too. Yeah, we yeah, did. We had the fan, and she was shot a uh, different frame rate to slow her down. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Okay. That, it all worked out. I mean, that's really Phil's uh, direction as well, knowing the timing of those scenes, because you're dealing with actors moving in different time signatures and getting it to work. It's not that easy, but... It was an editing challenge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How much time did you spend on editing? Is the, it, it's about know, a 15-minute film. Had, had the hardest job, because they did the animation yeah. of the scribbles, which was a painstaking process. It took, like, what, almost two months? Probably, yeah. yeah. Really? It was, it was oh. a long time. Yeah. Um, and then the editing process, I was editing the whole time. I, I did, was doing the work with the ghost and getting her into all the frames and all the scenes that she had to be in. So I, I would say we finished all the photography at the end of December of 2005, and we were done. We had a finished film by March, by about middle of March 2006. So about what ab- three months, yeah. What about, what's the ratio you per days of shooting as per days of editing. In other words, he's going to sh- get out his calculator. No, now, I just say you got out, <laughs> you got out five days, six, seven days of principal shooting, and then you are in the studio for for months. For months. This was the first thing I, I really of this length that I had edited. So yeah. I was learning. You know, yeah. I don't know if it would take me uh, longer or less time the next time, but I would say. Yeah, for the amount of days we shot, you know, you're, it's like double that in editing. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, uh, uh, easily. And easily, yeah, maybe triple, quadruple, because editing's just like any other kind of, like, finishing process. You know, you could fiddle with it forever, I, I found. Yeah. Um, and I, basically, Mike and Sean just had to tell me, you know, it's yeah. great, stop. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> yeah, it is a problem with editing. Yeah. It, it could be the rest of your life on one film if, you, if you're not careful. Yeah, yeah. You, you start to lose sight of what you're doing after yeah. a while, too, because you're, you're picking up things that nobody notices but you because you've yeah. watched it a thousand times. Right. We're speaking with Phil Mucci and Michael Hauck of the film Listing Dead. Just back to the scribbles, the electronics that went with the scribbles, yeah. the, you know, the special effect. Was that Peter's uh, work, or did someone else do that? In terms of the sound design? Yeah, the uh, sound. That was Phil, uh, yeah. pulling together all the sound design for the actual yeah. scribble sounds. Yeah, that, that was very effective. I like that. I like that uh, it really went well with it, and it was, made you feel very uneasy, and, and the, the film really turned on that sound, too. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, it was supposed to become like we're watching a silent horror flick called The Listening Dead, but it's really, you know, it's all about sound. And yeah. that was supposed to the scribble scratch thing is, besides being a nod to like, you know, David Lynch's use of sound, which I think he's, he's a genius yeah. at using sound in, in those kind of ways. But it was also to be, you know, to put us in that position that this is an irritant. You just want to hear the piano. You don't yeah. want to hear that. It kind of gets you into the story a little bit, I hope. Wasn't Eraserhead part of the, the films that you sent out for people to watch? Is it, uh, yeah, there, were, there was definitely scenes from Eraserhead. There's yeah. an obvious nod to Eraserhead with the bleeding uh, turkey oh, leg. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is like the quail at the family dinner in Eraserhead. Yeah, right, right. Uh, <laughs> the homage to uh, Yeah, homage to David. <laughs> and, and there's kind of a bondage thing going on with a drumstick, I think, too. That's, that's <laughs> that was, yeah, that was, I don't know where I thought that up, but... <laughs> You know, I have to ask you about one other scene in the film too. The the outdoor shot. I imagine that was at the house where where uh, he is setting her out to meet her doom with Ravage. Yeah, that was shot at the house. That was the only exterior we could get at the house. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were scrambling to even get that shot. Was um, that one of the last a lot ones? Of outtakes of stuff that we got of the house that when it got too dark out. Um, mm-hmm. That was like right at sunset. We had about fifteen minutes. It was it was tricky. You, you had some foreground lighting on them in the back of the house it looked was that was that a sunlight or was that something else it seemed like the house was lit a particular way or yeah, was that fred, in post fred lit the house through a tree with a big uh, i think it was like a what was it 4k or yeah, 10k something ah. I don't know. a big he had a big light out just out of frame blasting through a tree onto the house yeah very good yeah, yeah and then we you know we lit up we put bright lights inside the two windows that we wanted to be lit in the house and had guys running around with these you know, really old-fashioned smoke machines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, we got lucky with that sky, too, that was, that was behind the house oh, yeah. at that point. We were like, whoa, this looks, this looks terrific. Yeah, it really looked great. Tell us a little bit about the journey of The Listening Dead since then. You've had it at a number of film festivals. Why don't we uh, run down a list of the things that you guys have been able to do with the film since? It's really well received so far. It's very pleasing to us for all the work we put into it. We won uh, Best Short Film at our first festival, which we were really happy with in New York, and since then we've gone on to uh, Fantastic Fest in Austin, which is a great festival that I think is going to be in its third year this year, and they're a really supportive group of people, and we won Best of Fest there. We've won several other things. For cinematography, production design, production design yeah. and Best Short Film at some smaller genre festivals. I just returned from Portugal where they have Fantas Porto, which is one of the largest European fantasy and horror festivals. It's the 27th, 27th year, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, they paid for my hotel. They, <laughs> they paid for my meals. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And we, we won at that festival, too, with Pan's Labyrinth winning as the, as the best feature. So we were, I was just over the moon about that. Yeah, yeah. In such good company. What is the life of a film like this after... I guess it's as good as mine. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I mean, people obviously can go online at thelisteningdead.com, and they can buy it. Well, they can see the trailer there. They see the trailer. We're still doing festivals in Europe. Okay. Uh, we're hoping to play at Sitges in uh, Spain and a couple other festivals. Uh, basically, what we've learned is like a short film in the festival circuit may have a year and a half or two years of life out there. And then we plan on doing some kind of distribution. We've been offered several different distribution deals, nothing really that jumps out at us. We have an issue as well to other filmmakers out there, don't fall into this trap. We, using that Dead Can Dance song uh, at the beginning uh-huh. is, is a stone in our shoe right now because we only purchased the rights for festivals, film festivals, and uh, they re- really raked us over the coals for it. Um, uh-huh. 
it costs oh. it costs more than we anticipated. So to get rights for distribution is going to be a huge, you know, bill. So Peter Scriba and I are uh, furiously uh, working on replacing that track, maybe for distribution. Okay. Well, uh, but, I think it know, could be I, easily. I would say to you know other filmmakers out there who don't know this already, you know, try to just use original music if you can. So, so um, there's obviously different. There's a sort of graduated. Uh, oh, yeah. system here you can use it for festivals you use mu- certain music for festivals but if you get into a wider distribution then you get into yeah. a whole nother you have to renegotiate basically. exactly and in, we, in this case it, yeah and we found out a weird thing too which was that the the record label in london showed the film to the to the band the band liked it they said sure give us 500 bucks you can use it for festivals mm-hmm. but they said you have there's a there's a deal with the music publisher and the music publishers in New York, so you have to talk to them, and you have to pay them too. We talked to the music publisher in New York, and they said, "They said, yeah, fifteen hundred dollars, and you have to give them uh, the record label in London another thousand dollars because they have to get paid the same as us." So it went mm. from five hundred bucks to three thousand dollars. Oh my! Yeah. Um, two phone calls. Yeah, and two phone <laughs> yeah, and two calls. Two phone calls. Like, oh now, my God! And this, the, yeah. and this film was self-financed. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. you put up the money for yeah. this. And, what amazes yeah. me is that. <laughs> It's been a while since I've listened to Dead Can Dance, and I was a fan of theirs, and I saw your film, and I have a renewed interest in Dead Can Dance. These publishers, yeah, these well, the publishers are shooting themselves in the foot when they do things like this because there's a much wider interest in their group and their recordings that could happen if if they would just ease up on the, on this type of. I don't think it's copyright. really the band. I, I no. think it's more the you know the power brokers uh, in in the music industry, right. You know, it's it's the music publisher was in this case was really the one that stuck it to us, yeah. um, and probably without the band's knowledge of it. You know, the music industry is not doing so well, so uh, I think they're scrambling. But I, I, I agree with you. I think it's yeah. you know, I think especially if you have a film like that's doing well and that's getting some kind of notice, why would you want to be eliminated yeah. from that film in in some historical context? You know, if absolutely when you wanted the song to be on the DVD. <laughs> Yeah, it was a it was a great use of their music, and it could do nothing but increase interest in the group. Oh, I, I hope so. I agree. Yeah. Now, Philip, has this been a calling card? Have you gotten uh, offers? Yeah, we have had some interest based on this film. The film is so specialized, though, and so uh, sort of its own thing that I think uh, we've gotten maybe less interest than we had hoped. Uh, but I have had some very positive feedback from some distributors and some from acquisitions executives from uh, some some rather Good. impressive companies. And uh, I had my first pitch. I went to pitch my first feature-length idea. But one of the things that we did, which I'm not sure if you guys know or not, is that we, when we finished this and we were out with festivals with it, we turned around and made another short film almost immediately to show another side of what we can do. And that film's called Far Out. We just finished that one. And it's pretty much as opposite of the listening dead as you can be. It's, uh, it's color. It's a talkie. Uh, okay. It's, uh, it's uh, much more fun and much more silly, a lot more dialogue, a lot more actors. And we, still, we're uh, using that as a counterpoint, sort of a one-two punch. Like, here's our stylized black-and-white gothic fable, and here's our you know, 1972 Hollywood uh, groovy party movie. You know? All right. It's still a lot of style. It's still a yeah. lot of visuals going on. I'm going to say 72 Hollywood party movie. Yeah. Exactly. It, what we, what we, what's Far Out based on? Is it like uh, the party uh, Peter Sellers type of thing? No, it's more, uh, I'd say it's more Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's what probably you, the biggest you know, yeah. reference. I'm looking forward to kind this. of uh, the party look, though, that beautiful modernist space with 
people dancing crazily. And you know, <laughs> rotating lights everywhere and, you know, very psychedelic uh, atmosphere. <laughs> Terrific. We've been speaking with Phil Mucci and Michael Hauk of The Listening Dead, the film, the short film that you can check out at thelisteningdead.com. Thanks very much for being on today. Thank uh, you very much. It's our pleasure. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.